The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. It's fascinating when we think of parenting. Every time someone stands up to speak on parenting, it's not uncommon to hear the speaker make a whole bunch of disclaimers as to uh, why you know, this is hard for them to teach and so forth, that they weren't the perfect parent, and uh, on and on it goes. And at times, uh, that becomes, at least in my mind, just a bit annoying. And so, to keep in line with this, I decided I'm just going to do this at the start, give you my list of disclaimers, and we can go from there. So, I confess to all of you that I spent way too much time with my girls listening to their endless chatter, their detailed stories, uh, reading books to them, and so forth. I also confess that I spent way too much time traveling the state, going to every sporting event that they had, and sitting in near blizzards and early soccer season, and so forth. I spent way too much time in praying for their... Okay, hold on, hold on, just a second, all right. I think what you're doing is... One of those things where you use your strengths and you're pretending they're weaknesses. Uh, this is my the whole oldest daughter, Rachel. Uh, yeah, so it just so happens I actually have a list of his weaknesses. <laughs> okay, set the record straight. Um, number one, football being a little bit too much of an idol. So when I was, as a child growing up, we'd have to crawl under the TV screen so not to obscure the vision during Husker games. Um... <laughs> Number two, when I would come home with, you know, new clothes, new shirt, new shoes, new hairstyle, and I'd ask him how it looked, he would compliment something that I had had for a really long time, not the new thing. Um, Number three, constant teasing to all of our boyfriends. Just continual teasing, never stopping. Okay, 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 you've had your say. All right, thank you. Well, I'll be back there listening. Yeah, whatever. Actually, having the boyfriends come over is my favorite part of parenting. (laughs) I love it. So, yeah, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about parenting. We're in the series that we've been in, and we've been looking at things in a little bit different of of an angle. Um, What we're trying to do today is look at not so much the typical parenting uh, talk. Uh, we can find those anywhere. I mean, James Dobson kind of pioneered that field with his focus on the family uh, radio program and the film series and so forth. And they were truly culture changing, at least for Christians. Um, promise keepers came along and all of us men uh, understood that we are supposed to be promise keepers to our wives, to our children, and so forth. One of my favorite seminary profs, Howard Hendricks, shared a vision with our class that I took for my own in which he said, at some point, uh, once I am dead, I would like my tombstone to read the best husband and father. And I thought that's a a worthy, worthy cause. And so we've heard those kind of things in the past. Um, I think the challenge for us today, though, is that as we think about parenting, way too often, Instead of, like we do so often, uh, letting the Word of God speak to us and inform us on what it means to be family and what it means to be a parent or a child, we allow our culture to dictate that to us. And trying to separate those two can be tricky at times. So let's just dive into the Word of God 
and see what it says. We're going to look for some scriptural principles uh, as we go through this on family. First of all, we look in the Old Testament. I'm going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is probably my all-time favorite passage, as it is many's. And it's because, you know, the Israelites love this because of the Shema, uh, the statement about who God is, the identity of God. But then it morphs, as you read through the passage, into talking about the responsibility that families have for communicating truths about God. So in a sense, as you read this together, it is the blueprint for what parenting should be all about. Hear, O Israel, this is chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If you recognize that, Christ repeats this verse uh, in the Gospels. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall, excuse me, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, in the Old Testament, uh, parenting was clearly seen as being that which was about uh, taking every single opportunity to model, to instruct, uh, to correct, to help those in our family understand what it means to be in relationship with God. Uh, and that is not, you know, earth-breaking news, but that's where it starts. In fact, what we would see if we did a very detailed study of the Old Testament is there are many, many, many verses that deal with the role of parents and children. Some of them unique to the law, but others in principle having application to us today. The point is that we are to model as parents relationships, priorities, character, and compassion. We are to teach truths, life lessons, common sense. Uh, I think back to my own uh, childhood. As many of you know, my dad died when I was just two years of age. And my mom raised my brother and I. And she kind of subscribed to this common sense parenting that unfortunately we see too often is lacking in our society today. But even before she was a believer in Christ, it was awesome for me, as I think back on it now, to see how she instilled in us this kind of principle. Uh, I, I remember not too long after I got invited to a youth group, I had a uh, Sunday night where, and that's when youth groups usually happened in our church. Uh, I had been to the youth group once, maybe twice, but this was now in October. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember this back in the day, but Wizard of Oz used to only come on once a year. And it was a huge event. Uh, everybody, at least in our families, got together. My mom had friends, and they would all come together, and all the kids would gather around the TV set to watch the tornado, the witch, and the ruby red slippers clicking together. Um, and I just said to my mom, I'm not going to youth group tonight. I want to watch The Wizard of Oz with everybody. And she looked at me, and she was like, uh, aren't, didn't you make a commitment to go there? And I said, commitment? And I said, no, they invited me. I went. It's no big deal. And she said, no, I think that is a big deal. Is that nice man Bill expecting you tonight? Bill was the youth group leader. And I said, well, I, I suppose. And she said, well, then you're going. 
And I said, no, I'm not going. And she said, yes, you're going. And we went back and forth on this. And it turned into quite a Donnybrook. Uh, you know, I was probably about 14 years old at the time. I didn't understand why she was making such a fuss. I do remember thinking, she doesn't even understand Christianity. It wasn't like we went to church or Sunday school. You know, uh, I just got invited by a random neighborhood friend to youth group. And here she's making such a fuss. So the next thing I know, I'm being pushed out the front door and told to go to church. Well, I got very angry. So I walked up the hill about a block and I sat on a rock wall and I said well, to myself, I'm not going. I may not get to watch Wizard of Oz, but neither am I going to youth group. And I just sat there in a pout. And the next thing I know, my five foot mother is walking up the hill <laughs> towards me. And she, this is quite embarrassing because at 14, I was nearly six foot. I was certainly 200 pounds. And she started pushing me, literally pushing me off that wall and up the hill. And she just looked at me and she said, if it's the last thing I do, you're going to keep this commitment. And at that point, I knew I was whooped. And I walked. Later on, after she became a believer, we talked about that a lot. And she said, it really didn't matter to me, whether it was church, Cub Scouts, whatever. I knew that my job was to model for you, to show you how serious it is to make a commitment, to stay true to those things that you commit to and that I commit to. Uh, this is key in the Old Testament. This idea of in agrarian society, dads and moms, as they plow the fields, as they take care of the uh, goats and the sheep, that they would continually look for opportunities to communicate life lessons to their children. We can never, never let those opportunities pass by. That's what it means to parent. Uh, scripture places this responsibility not on the synagogue, not on the uh, temple, not on the priests, but in the Old Testament, it's squarely on the parents in the biological role of parenting. Others may come along and assist, certainly. Truths may be taught uh, in other ways, but parents bore the primary responsibility for communicating the truths about God to their children. They were going to be the ones and are the ones that are going to be held responsible for the way that their biological children understood the word of God. Parents must show courage and initiative in living out this life plan. I often get the opportunity when I'm counseling a family to ask the parents, and this is usually on the uh, heels of a traumatic event, and some, the kid, the teenager, whomever, has done something that is drastic. And the parents are, of course, heartbroken, and life isn't going the way they thought. And I always ask them, what was your plan? What did you hope that would happen? And then I secondly ask, how did you make that work out for you? How did you put steps into place? And almost universally, every once in a while I'm surprised, but people will look at me and say, plan? We had no plan. We just kind of reacted. And that's what we do, isn't it? We just kind of grow them, feed them, send them out the door, send them to school, send them to wherever. And then if they have an issue, we respond to it. But I think in the Old Testament, what we're seeing is the idea is, is that we have an intentionality. We have a purposefulness that we want to be the ones that set the life plan. It's awfully hard to do once kids get into high school, and that's typically where we, in our phases of life, as we saw in that video, where we run into this. 
oh man, I wish I had said something when they were younger. I wish that I had put some things into place for wisdom when they were still learning. Uh, to react in some of the situations we get into, uh, it's often, uh, I won't say too late, but it's going to be much more difficult to accomplish that goal. Uh, you want to avoid, like my mom had to go through, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with a kid in high school and having to basically come down to my will versus your will. If we take the opportunities to instruct uh, when they're young, according to Deuteronomy 6, it works. Well, there's an exception. We, we all agree that this is the thrust of the Old Testament family. It's bloodlines. We read about the clans, the tribes. Uh, there's such cohesiveness within the sons of Jacob that everything is defined by biological bloodlines. The exception to that is found in Exodus, and I'm going to switch over there real quick. Uh, chapter 22, and verse 21. And that says, You shall, and this is part of the law, not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners. Okay, so you, the Israelites, you who are of the bloodline, you who are of so family-oriented, once you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You were an alien. You didn't belong there. You were uh, come into a new. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. I will surely hear their cry when they cry out to me, uh, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, if I had opportunity to talk to God, I would say, can you state that a little more strongly for me? I, I missed the boat on that one. Obviously, it means a lot to God. That when we, even in a culture in which family is defined by bloodlines, we are supposed to be on the watch for those who exist out of the normal family structures. The widow, the fatherless, uh, the, the alien, that person who has come into our society and as God builds up his relationship with Israel and they institute a series of feasts and celebrations, the family is supposed to come around those people, those that didn't belong in a, in a uh, biological family that didn't somehow quite fit, and they're supposed to invite them in. Uh, the family's job is to do that. We see this in the Passover. We see this in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, she doesn't have any legal standing in the community of Israel. And yet, uh, we see that Boaz, a wealthy man, uh, is instructing his overseers to leave the grain uh, in the field so that those who are poor may gather it, specifically uh, Ruth. And then later on, as her kinsman, Boaz chooses to redeem her. In other words, he's taken in the alien, that who did not normally belong in the normal sense and the cool thing about that whole story, of course, if you remember, is that that it becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That God decides to bring somebody in who didn't necessarily uh, fit the definition of the family. So for all of that, let's just understand what the Old Testament tells us about children and our role as parents. In creation, they are the fruit of a couple bound together in one flesh by God. In Psalms, we see that they are a blessing from God. Children are an opportunity. Uh, sometimes, some, for some of us, children come unexpectedly, uh, but never for God. They're always in his plan. 
They always have a purpose. They always have a divine and sovereign role to be played. Um, every child, not just the ones that are in our family. In annual ceremonies, they are a central participant, especially in the Passover feast, which of course is the most important of all the feasts uh, that we would soon see in the New Testament. Uh, in birth, birth order, the first had to be bought back from God. It was considered the ultimate gift from God. Uh, in the commandments, they benefit from the parents who embrace the great Shema. They understand the, the spiritual truths. In history, they inherited the symbols of God's mighty miracles in Israel. You think of the stories where they're crossing the Jordan River and they're putting down stones so that it will be a testimony to coming generations of God's provision and work. Time after time, there are physical uh, things put in place that will kind of prompt the memory of the family members that this is great. Do we do that? Is that something that you've done in your home? Uh, that, that's a great thing to do. Think of some things that you can do that will be a physical reminder to your children of what God has done in your life or in your family's life. Uh, that's awesome. So we get through the Old Testament. We go to the Gospels. And the, the, the interesting thing is, is that when you look in the New Testament, there are very few verses that really specifically deal with the family. That does not seem to be a big emphasis. However, I would say this, that when Jesus is dealing with his own family, we're going to see that even though he is Hebrew, even though that he has that lineage, as we can see in Matthew and Luke's genealogies, uh, Jesus is going to turn that whole concept on its head. He's going to, in a sense, redefine the family. If in the Old Testament, the family was totally biological, totally identified through bloodlines, Jesus is going to upset that apple cart. John 2.4, uh, the first miracle that Jesus does in the city of Canaan, or the town of Canaan, uh, his mother comes to him, and she seems to imply that there's going to be great embarrassment because the wine has run out at the wedding feast. And Jesus' response to her is somewhat surprising. You would think, well, one of the Ten Commandments is that you shall honor your mother. But the way that he talks to her, and he says, what does this have to do with me? Uh, it is not my time. Jesus is basically kind of, seems like verbally, putting her in a different place. He didn't necessarily respond that I have uh, some incumbent reaction to you. In Luke 8, uh, verse 21, we see the same thing. Jesus is teaching people. He's encouraging them. And someone comes and tells him that your mother and your brothers are outside waiting to see you. And he responds, uh, these people right here, these are my mothers. These are my brothers. The biological identity in the New Testament is usurped by the spiritual lifeline. Think about who led you to Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning. Who first shared the gospel with you? That is your true father. That person that bothered to pray for you, care for you, nurture you. Who discipled you? Who raised you? Uh, this is the new family of the New Testament. Jesus' intention is to move from exclusivity to inclusiveness. Um, and yet there's a tension here. Because we even see as we look forward in John chapter 19 that Jesus is not abandoning the biological family. He's just adding another dimension. So often we see that, that Jesus does this. Commands that were easy to understand in the Old Testament. You shall not commit adultery. 
that means that I cannot sleep if I'm married with another woman, right? Jesus says, well, let me add to that. If you even lust after another woman, you've already committed adultery. Well, murder, I cannot kill somebody according to the Old Testament. Jesus says, yes, but even if you hate another person, you've already committed murder. When it comes to the family, Jesus is saying the same thing. Family is hugely important, but I'm going to make it even tougher in a sense and, and, and broader. I'm going to say to you, yes, your family is important. Bring everything in the Old Testament to the new. We're going to bring it with us. We're going to have that emphasis on what parenting should be all about. But I want you now to look not just with your eyes at your own family. For me, I would not look just at my wife I own and my three daughters, but I'm looking at you. You're my family. You're my family. Every Christian in this world is our family. Jesus demonstrates this tension, you know, from the cross uh, in John 19. He says to John the apostle, uh, looking at his mother, Mary, who's going to be, probably she's already without her husband, Joseph. And at this point, with Jesus dying, she'll have no uh, easy way of supporting herself. And he says to John, this is your mother. He says to Mary, this is your son. So even though he's broadening this understanding, he is taking care of his responsibilities still. So this is not an either-or situation. This is both and. This tension exists. Uh, and in the church, we have to see each other as our relatives. Yeah, it's too easy in American culture, isn't it, as Christians? We get done with church on a Sunday. We go out to eat just with our family members. Uh, we, we gather for all of the major holidays with family. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to say there is. But it is incumbent upon us to understand, whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, that our family is larger than just the ones that God has blessed us with. Our family includes everyone. Uh, this is the church. Uh, this is the family. We see this in Paul's writings in Ephesians in chapter 5. And then the parallel passage in Colossians um, 5 verses uh, 22, and it starts quite a long saying. I'll just touch on the first one here. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then he jumps to husbands, and the next verse, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he jumps to the parents in a command, and then in verse uh, five, he jumps down to slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And in both sets of passages in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul lays out that the New Testament family code is such, it's not just biological. He starts out with a statement of the inferior person in his understanding of leadership. Uh, so he starts out with the wife, he then goes to children, then he goes to the slave because he reserves the, the majority of the heaviness of the commands for those who are, are in the leadership positions, uh, the husband, the parents, and the master of the slave. And he wants them to understand that the, your interaction with each other is as family. We, we have to keep this in light of the gospel. This is what it's all about. So as we look at this, we understand that this tension between biological lines and spiritual lines, by the time we get into the New Testament, the spiritual lines are definitely winning, if we want to look at it that way. As you look at the early church in the book of Acts, 
we see that they put everything together, all their resources, their money. I think this is why the story of Ananias and Sapphira is so important, uh, because they weren't willing to be part of the family. By their refusal to bring their offerings in total before God and lying about it, uh, they betrayed the family. And that's what it means. In our American culture, it's very easy to be a believer, isn't it? Uh, we don't have to worry about really taking a stand for Christ as far as legally, uh, persecution, and so forth. But in Jesus' day, and certainly by the time the Apostle Paul is running around, it really cost you something to be a believer. It's very possible that your own biological family members would turn against you, would rat you out to the authorities for all different kinds of reasons. But in the vacuum that that might create because of your strong stand for Jesus Christ, in rushes the church, this family, this family that can sustain you, this family that can meet your needs, this family that can pray for you and watch over you. Too often, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, when we talk about family, and I am the pastor of family ministries at Parkview, uh, we emphasize pr pretty much the biological family. But yet, to be more in line with the New Testament, we have to really put that under the magnifying glass. What does that mean? Well, it means the alien. It means the single parent. It means the fatherless child. It means everybody that doesn't fit that nice little niche of family in our, in our understanding. All of them are as dedicated or as part of the family uh, dedicated by God as, as anybody else. That is hugely important. When I grew up, uh, I was a fatherless child. Uh, my mom did a great job trying to raise us. Um, but the truth is, I was always looking for that father figure. I was always trying to find somebody that would teach me how to be a man. And thankfully, uh, God provided a series of youth group leaders, uh, Bill, who I mentioned in the previous story, but then Ron, uh, who actually came and lived in my mom's basement apartment for a period of time. That's a divine, uh, purposeful plan by the Lord that he helped me mature tremendously. Um, and throughout my life, I've had men speak into my life. Not everyone has that experience, uh, unfortunately. Not everyone is brought into the family. When we think of service in the community, when we think of service even in the church, our minds have to be bigger. Our view has to be more expansive to everyone that is part of the family, to everyone that is in our community. Who should be left out is really the question that we ask. So why the emphasis on family? What is so important about family, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament? Well, the way Scripture sets it up, it's reflecting God's creation. And he's saying basically a family that functions well is the greatest source of joy imaginable. It's not that we have to work hard at dismantling the biological emphasis on family. It's that we want to welcome in anyone who doesn't feel like they're part of that as being biological family. Well, so I go back to asking you, what is your plan for your children? If your grandparents here today, what is your plan for your grandchildren? What is your plan? Now let me ask you this. What is your plan for those who don't necessarily fit you know, we just got done listening to a, a little spiel on the Rafa house in Cambodia. Uh, those are, what, what if that was your daughter who was in a sex trade or sex slave situation? Uh, what wouldn't you do 
to rescue her. See, that's the challenge. When we get a New Testament perspective on family, we really aren't asking, you know, what won't we do? We're, we're really asking God, what do you want me to do? Uh, in faith, I trust that you are the all-powerful, all sovereign God and that you have all resources at hand. And I think of Faith Academy. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, who was just up here, teaches third grade down there, and my wife has been helping her uh, pretty much full-time all this year. And you see the lives of those little children. You know, and we talk about this a lot, don't we? How much this costs us as a, as a body in Christ. But yet that's our family, isn't it? Those kids, they're our family. So many of you are so faithful in serving. You've, you serve in the nursery, you serve in preschool, you work with Unite, you work with Launch, and I'm so thankful for you. We, we run through some 300 volunteers a month at Parkview, and I, I just rejoice in you. But you know, even then, it's not just about that hour, not if they're really our family, is it? Uh, have you identified, can you tell who the stranger is, who the alien is? who the fatherless is, who the widows are, who the single parent is. Do we make room for them in our hearts and in our families? You see, God designed the family, according to the scriptures, to bring the greatest joy and fulfillment in anyone's life, even if you're single, even if you're newly divorced. Uh, it doesn't matter. You have a part in our family. We always make you feel welcome. We always see you as important to us as even our own biological children. We're all guilty of selfishness. I am. Uh, we all want things to be a certain way, but yet uh, we have to challenge ourselves. We have to see things the way that Jesus saw them. We have to be sometimes less about Americans and more about being Christians. And that will bring a different paradigm, a different way of looking and judging our lives. Lastly, what are some specifics that we can do as parents? Some principles we see from the scriptures that I have uh, I've already hit this morning. First of all, uh, we need to help create identity. As parents of a biological family, we need to ask, uh, who did God create my child to be? Uh, that, the time to ask that is not when they're 13 or 18 or whenever they're driving you nuts. The time to ask that is the first time that that nurse picks up that baby and shows it to you. Who did God create this child to be? The child will eventually ask, who am I? To God. And are we ready with the answer? And I would broaden that now and challenge us to think about it this way. Uh, who is God asking you to be? Uh, you're in my family. Who is God asking you to be? You're in my family. Uh, do you have questions about who you are in God because you're in my family? I'm going to take the time, the resources, and the effort to make sure that we understand each other, that we have that shared identity of Jesus Christ, because the answer to both those questions is in Jesus Christ. We have identity uh, because of his shed blood. You see, the blood of Christ covers us all. Uh, we don't have to worry about blood ties, about genes, about chromosomes, because we have something far more uh, significant, far stronger, and that is we have a shared Savior, a shared gospel, a shared bloodline, but it's his blood, right? Yeah. Parents also have to help create a faith community uh, with your children. You want to think about helping them and be, introduce them to uh, faith communities, places where they can have the great influence of others in their life. No parent who has any wisdom at all is going to think, well, I'm sufficient for my kids. Uh, whatever they need, 
they can find in me. No, we want to get them in front of others that we respect and that we want to help. Well, we do the same even for us as a church. I want to get you in a place where you can be most help. We do a lot of talking in this church about community groups. Uh, that is where God wants us. He wants us to be in a place where we can influence others and they can influence us, where they can be challenged to us, where they can call us on the floor for sinful attitudes, where we can praise what God has done in our lives with the Sherwinskis going through that major loss they had. They have a group that comes around them and prays with them and cries with them. Uh, we have to create that faith community. Par parents can't create a dependence upon God. Uh, this is so important. Uh, to do this, to create that dependence upon God as biological parents, means that sometimes we're willing to let them experience danger, to put them at risk. It's not easy to do, is it? Uh, I'm always very protective. Uh, don't want my girls to have to go through any pain that's unnecessary. Don't want to put them in a place where they could be hurt. And yet, one of my great maxims of life is, Dave, get out of the way and let God be God in their lives. I say, I'm not God. <laughs> I'm not God. God is God. Jehovah, Jesus, that's the God in their lives. Francis Chan, when we think about this in a broader scope, as far as the church family, says, life is comfortable when you separate yourself from people who are different from you. But God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we'll be in trouble if he doesn't come through. I've had the privilege of being on so many missions trips, especially with high schoolers, and it is so cool to see what happens when they leave their comfort zone, when they get out there and they're for the first time in their lives, they're face to face with a community of people that live in a different way, a different style. Uh, they're not, they don't have any of their familiarities around. Their phones stopped working when the towers across the border you know, didn't reach and so forth, um, and all of a sudden, they realize it's just them and God. And yet, it's so tempting, isn't it, as biological parents, for us to say, oh man, I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to be on that missions trip. What if the plane crashes? What if this happens and that happens? What if you get sick? What if you catch, you know, uh, yeah, what if? What if? What if God showed up in ways that you could never recreate in your own home with your own parenting? The same question has to come to us as a church. Are we in a danger zone? Are we pushing ourselves in faith to do things that are radical? Are we pushing ourselves in dependence upon him to understand that we need him? Has church become too easy for us at times? If we're doing it right. We're going to understand that. Parents create a lifestyle of responsibility. Uh, Philippians 2.4 says, Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Uh, we teach service as parents. We want our kids to learn responsibility. I know I watched my mom take care of my grandma uh, year after year in, in Eagle Grove, Iowa. We drive from Omaha to Eagle Grove. I can't tell you how many times we made that drive in the latter years of my grandma's life after my grandpa had died. Uh, loved going there, loved seeing her, but times it was inconvenient. At times it was really rather annoying, especially for teenagers. But I saw my mom with patience, with love, with grace, take care of her mom. Fast forward 20 years later, my mom gets Alzheimer's, and we move her from Omaha to Iowa City. And for six years, we take care of her every need. We, we are there for her all the time. Why did I do that? Not because I'm a great guy, 
because it was modeled for me. My mom taught me responsibility, taught me what loving responsibility was all about. In the church, we have to do the same thing. There are people who don't understand this concept of service and of responsibility of taking care of the needs of others. And every time we have that opportunity, we should seek out those who need help, uh, those around us who can't do for themselves. Lastly, parents create an ability to learn from discipline. And discipline scripturally, like in Hebrews chapter 12, looks a little different than punishment. Punishment is to inflict pain, uh, so much pain that you will want to stop doing whatever it is you've been doing. When kids are little, we think of that as spanking. When they get older, we start taking things away. I always tell my girls my greatest line that I learned when my kids were in high school was, hello, Verizon. And if you don't understand that, that means that I found out I could call Verizon and turn their phone off for a day. You would have thought that I had killed them, you know. <laughs> I remember Hannah calling me from City High saying, Dad, I don't know what's right, right now. We've got to get to the Verizon store. My phone hasn't worked all day. I haven't got any text messages, no phone calls. And I said, oh, really? She had had an attitude the day before. She decided that she wasn't going to answer the phone. This went on for a while, and as much as I had cajoled her and, and threatened her to start answering the phone when I called, I'm paying for this, you know, she decided she's just going to do her own thing. I'm telling you what, there was a 180 turn in attitude. Yeah, you know, and that, that meant a lot. So that, that's kind of punishment, but discipline is different. Discipline is when we take a child to the point of submission, and we have them turn and look at their hearts. And we say, what is it about the heart that has brought you to this point of doing that which is displeasing to God? Discipline is always redemptive, uh, showing restitution, reassurement, assurance, encouragement. So in all these ways, we want to do this in our church family. We want to show discipline. There are times when we as church members need discipline. We need someone to come alongside us and say, dude, you've got a wrong attitude. You're taking wrong actions. We're not punishing you, but we want to lovingly discipline you. That's the family in a nutshell. We want to reassure. We want to teach responsibility. We want to create identity. We want to show responsibility and discipline to everyone that's in our congregation. We are a family, and we can never forget that. What a gift we have in this family. Christ is the head. He's the dad. The church is the bride. And we're the children. And we need to make more children, by the way, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Father, families are huge. Uh, we, we, we're not trying to take anything away from that biological family. But yet, Lord, we acknowledge that your word tells us that we have to see each other as our family. It's uncomfortable at times. It's not the way that we would always want it. But Father, I pray that we will trust in you. And in so doing, we will reflect to the world that there's something worth having here at Parkview Church. We love one another. We see each other as valuable. It's not about individuals, but it's about community. Thank you for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. 
You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.